welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lombas. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in three separate locations in New Orleans, Louisiana. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. And we are currently pretending that it's not Mardi Gras because there's really nothing safe to do to celebrate the holiday. So we're kind of celebrating Valentine's Day instead right now. It feels perverse in my yearly calendar to be doing this. Yeah, it feels wrong, but it's very right. Well, we're watching a lot of like romantic comfort movies, at least, mm-hmm. which is get me through the cold nights and the <laughs> carnival void in my heart. Have you all been watching anything else besides those rom-coms we'll be talking about today? I've been like kind of just re-watching a bunch of stuff that I haven't watched in a long time. So other than rewatches, I've recently uh, watched Arachnophobia for the first time. Is that a 90s movie? Yeah, it's actually from like 1990. So like fresh into the 90s. And it's about some killer spiders, like an invasive uh, species of spiders that's very deadly that makes their way to the U.S. And it stars a young Jeff Daniels. Important distinction. Are these regular size spiders or like kaiju size spiders? Okay regular size spider which i think made it way scarier so this movie like does that where like it gives you this like creature feature aspect without this like bizarre like you know crazy looking spider that's like you know eight feet tall or has like long fangs it just looks like a regular spider just like a you know tarantula type spider like a big little fucker they should have called it big little fuckers (laughs) yes big little fuckers arachnophobia too but yeah, I liked it. And it's obviously it's it's goofy. Anything about like a killer spider, or whatever, that's going to be, you know, a silly movie. And it is silly, but it it's legit scary because there's a lot of jump scares that pop up like all the time. So you're constantly on edge just waiting for like a close up of a spider or like a freaking little poisonous deadly spider to like fall on the camera lens so i was just screaming like the whole time i was like watching this movie (laughs) um and i didn't expect that to happen there is like a deadly species of spiders in venezuela and there's a guy from california in venezuela who gets killed by one of them all they have to do is bite you once and you fucking die i mean it's terrifying so while they put him in the coffin to ship him back to california to get buried the deadly spider hangs out in the coffin so then once the coffin goes to california this like really small town the spider kind of comes out and starts laying eggs and crap and multiplying in this uh small town and starts killing off all these people in the town john goodman makes an appearance towards the end as like this ghostbusters type exterminator to help like get rid of the deadly spiders that are taking over the town um, so yeah, I mean, it's funny, it's goofy, but like I said, I, it really uh, scared me. Um, not in like a haunting <laughs> way, but just, you know, they're all over the place. You could feel them crawling on you when you're watching the damn movie. It's it's so gross, but I highly, highly recommend it. I feel like insects get that visceral reaction out of me more so than any other kind of monster. I think I saw this when I was a kid. Like I remember it coming on, on like some cable Network, sci-fi or yeah something like that like late yeah. at night because i definitely remember john goodman as the exterminator character <laughs> that's a vivid memory yeah i remember it being really good i probably need to rewatch it so yeah that's pretty much like the big one that i've i've been into that i've watched lately it's that's new um but how about you james what have you been watching 
So Hannah got a um, pass to the Sundance Film Festival, nice. which was virtual this year. We had a three-day pass, so Saturday, Sunday, and I actually took off work on Monday. Hell yeah. And I think I watched like a total of maybe 12, 13 movies. Damn. Yeah, so it was a very <laughs> heavy weekend. That's an authentic film fest experience. Like just cramming it into your mind is just numb. Yeah. And I don't know, like, cause again, it was so many movies, you know, and a lot of these have not been seen by a wide audience, but I will say like, there weren't any that like really blew me away. And there's a few that I wanted to see that, you know, either sold out or uh, the timing didn't work out, but there, there were a couple I wanted to, touch on real quick without going into too much detail. Cause like I said, I don't know when some of these are actually going to be available, but one that got a lot of praise that I did like was a uh, passing. Oh yeah. Netflix just bought that today. Oh, did they? Yes. Yeah, so it's gonna be on Netflix this year. Oh, great. It's really good. It's about these two high school friends in the 1920s, both who are black. One of them is passing as a white woman and they kind of rekindle their friendship and both sort of like discover things about themselves and how they deal with race. And it's a really beautifully shot. And in some moments, like very tense character study. I especially like the beginning where they initially run into each other and we get to meet the one woman's husband who does not know that she is black and he is very racist. And there's a very uncomfortable seeing where they're all having lunch together. So yeah, I, I don't know. I really liked it. I definitely can understand why Netflix would pick this one up. But I think the two that I was really most impressed by was one was a documentary called Cusp, which is about these young teenage girls that are growing up in this like Texas military town and most of them live in like trailer parks and are hanging out with older boys who are throwing parties and listening to like trap music and shooting guns uh, and doing drugs and like, and it's the summertime. So they're just kind of fucking around and going to parties, but it's like really beautifully shot. And it also was a really good study of these young women and how they kind of bond together and deal with these older men that are trying to prey on them. And there are some like really intense scenes of just these older scumbags, like basically trying to prey on girls that are like four to five years younger than them. But I don't know. I really liked it. And the other one that I wanted to touch on real quick, it was called Strawberry Mansion. Oh, I was excited about that one. What really drew me to it and why I decided to watch it initially was Dan Deacon did the soundtrack. Ooh. which was very exciting. And it's this twee fantasy story about this guy who works as a dream auditor. Like literally they're like taxing the items in your dreams. And he gets called to this artist's uh, mansion and he's basically like viewing her dreams. And it's not really the kind of thing I normally like. I know we've talked about like twee films, which is definitely falls into it reminded me a lot of like what is it science of sleep 
those sort of movies. I'm a huge sucker for that kind of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Aren't you not a big fan of Twee James? But I love this. I That's really loved it. And I thought it was like very inventive and like obviously made on a low budget, but like really DIY, cool, practical effects. And I thought the story was like pretty creative. And it also, you know, it's a being kind of the statement on capitalism. Like they're literally trying to look at your dreams so they can like sell you stuff. And yeah, it, it was just a fun ride. And the music was great. Obviously, like if you're a Dan Deacon fan, then you'll love the score of this. So that was definitely one of the most pleasurable films uh, that I saw during the festival. And there were lots of other ones too, but th- those are really the three that I really was impressed by. I'm interested in seeing all three of them. They all sound pretty good, especially Strawberry Mansion. That sounds like a fun time. Yeah, I can't miss that. And I will say the one I was most excited about, John and the Hole, was good. It left me a little bit cold. It was just like totally my jam. I ended up being a little disappointed by it, but it was like this nice mixture of Yorgos Lanthimos and like a Michael Haneke film two directors who I absolutely love. It just didn't quite hit the mark, but I think that one's probably going to get some buzz too. I heard that one was like a little overlong and a little slow. Very, very that slow. Kind of concept. And I, I think what it lacked was it, it went more in the Michael Haneke direction as far as like the humor was really buried deep under the surface. Whereas I feel like Yorgos Lanthimos, it's so absurd that it's like laugh out loud funny. And that's what I wish this would have been. And it took a more serious plotting meditative kind of approach. Yeah. I I just think it would have worked better if they highlighted the comedic side of the story, but I I think it will find some fans. Did you watch the pit when we did the pit for movie of the month? Uh, No, I don't think so. It's like a really like cheesy kind of exploitation movie that has a very similar premise. Uh, so if you want to see like the trashy eighties version of, uh, John on the hole, I think that's worth looking at. This was like trying to do the same thing, but like an art house style. And I don't know. It's a ridiculous concept. Like you might as well make it more funny. Long live the pit. Long live the pit. I think about the pit all the time and the troglodytes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, actually one more real quick, Brandon that I did see that made me think of you and how you love these sort of technophobic films or it takes place through a smartphone. I did see our hashtag J. Oh, the Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) I absolutely, I did not like it, but I really appreciated what it was going for. It was just like, was the first one I've seen a long time where I think it took that concept a little too far, where it's just like constantly just a barrage of, Facebook messages and live streaming. And then he goes, whenever the music changes on screen, he goes to the Spotify app and actually picks the song. And then it's checking my Instagram while I'm hanging out at the party. And as I'm live streaming, all the comments are going up on the screen. You're selling me on it. No, I know. And like, (laughs) that's why I kind of want you to watch it. I want to know what you would think about it. Because again, with the timeless story like Romeo and Juliet, it it makes sense that it keeps getting updated for like a modern generation. And this is definitely the Romeo and Juliet of the social media 
age, but I just found it really grating and hard to watch at some points. Don't think that that was the point, but <laughs> I it looked it looked cool and I got what it was going for. But I don't know, maybe you should check that one out. I, I would like to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, and I remember watching Unfriended and thinking, I wish this was a teenage romance, but um, I definitely, that blurb, like Romeo and Juliet across social media apps, that definitely got my attention. Um, I, I will be watching that <laughs> eventually. <laughs> well, what about you, Brandon? Have you watched anything recently? I've been doing a couple things. One, I've been like hitting just shuffle on my letterboxd watch list and just watching the first movie that's available on whatever apps i uh subscribe to and another thing is i've been watching um more finished movies from karismaki oh the matchstick factory guy yeah so we're doing the match factory girl for our movie of the month uh in february so i've been watching more of his movies as well um, i'm gonna bring up one from each category both because they're romantic and you know we're kind of doing a romance episode from Karismaki, I watched one on Criterion Channel called Shadows in Paradise. I think it was his one right before Match Factory Girl. Um, and it's very simple. All of his work's kind of similar, but it's very much just of that era. Except, you know, Match Factory Girl turns out to be this like really like bitter revenge tale towards the end. This one is the same vibe, except it's like this sweet romance. This garbage collector falls in love with this grocery store clerk who's actually played by the main character from match factory girl. And he keeps trying to woo her, but he's like really bad at it. And life just keeps shitting on them the same way that life keeps shitting on her in the other movie. And instead of like getting bitter revenge against the world, they just kind of like pair off and like leave their shitty jobs together and form this sort of like awkward, but kind of sweet romance. And I've been watching a few movies from this guy. I watched one from 2017 last night as well called The Other Side of Hope. And he's just so consistent. Like no matter what decade it is, the lighting is the same. The low-key dark sense of humor is the same. His attention to just the embarrassment and like degradation of like working a job is the same it's so consistent and it's always funny and it's always like kind of adorable even when it's deeply sad but there's just something about shadows and paradise that i particularly liked a lot so if you if you liked match factory girl and you want more of that feeling uh shadows and paradise is like a sweeter more romantic version of the same setup well and we had watched an interview with him and i i thought he was great like basically he's exactly the way I would expect him to be after seeing his films completely deadpan. Like, <laughs> but the stuff he says is like extremely funny, but it, he doesn't crack a smile and he very sort of, like you said, dark, dark sense of humor, but you could tell like he's still like kind of filled with joy in some weird, sad way. Super interesting guy. And I, yeah. And I love the one movie I've seen of his. So I would definitely, want to check out more there were a few on criterion channel and the the one i picked from my letterbox watch list was gregory's girl from 1980 it's a movie from bill forsyth so it's a scottish comedy uh from early in his career there's like no money in the budget and it's about this like awkward gangly teenager who you know hit one of those growth spurts where like 
he has those like uh, noodle limbs he doesn't know what to do with. He's just like awkwardly tall and doesn't know what to do with his body. And he's like covered in acne and just has the goofiest fucking smile on his face. He uh, he kind of acts like Pee Wee Herman or like Mr. Bean. He's just like, <laughs> just like always pleased with everything. And it's so adorable. But he's like fixated on this girl who joined his soccer team who's a much better athlete than him and like much better socialized than he is. He doesn't know how to act around her because he has this like crush that's like blinding him. And at the start of the movie, it kind of feels like it's going to be the Scottish version of like Porky's. Like the Gregory character meets up with all of his other like dude friends to look through windows to see girls changing and like are like kind of obsessed with like losing their virginity. And yeah, it's gross. But like over the course of the movie, he is guided by the women in his community on like how to act like his little sister and the other girls at school. And even the girl he has a crush on sort of like humor his, his attentions, but also like redirect him to like acting like a human being. And by the end of the film, it turns into like almost this heist where like everyone conspires to like teach him how to like be normal around girls. Uh, And it's just so cute and so funny. Uh, the humor reminded me a lot of Better Off Dead and oh, Rock and Roll okay. High School. How that's like very like absurdist, but kind of matter of fact. Like really goofy things happen in the background. They're just like not commented on. And I was just like all smiles the entire movie. And I don't know. I loved it. Oh, cool. I, I love a good 80s comedy. Um, and that one sounds like a not so gross one. So nice. I'm I'm totally into that. You would think in the first 30 seconds that it's going to be the most gross 80s comedy. <laughs> and like uh, very quickly, it, it course corrects and becomes like super adorable. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how the character is too. Like he starts off as a fuck up. And by the end of the movie, he's got this like adorable relationship with a girl his age. And I don't know. It's very cute. Uh, speaking of adorable romances, I think that's what we were aiming for today, right? Uh, maybe not. There's some uh. toxic stuff that we have to talk about too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, mate, I don't know. <laughs> We kind of ran the gambit with this one. Yeah, it's hard to group them all. We, we all picked a random rom-com. It's kind of like a grab bag of the genre. Starting with one of Britney's favorite rewatches, I think. Oh, God, yes. That's how we got here. Yeah. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. When you think of the biggest bands of the 80s, you think of pop. I said I wasn't gonna lose my head, but then pop goes my heart. Did you ever hear of the band Pop? Yeah, of course, everybody has. They had that ridiculous hair and those ridiculous outfits, and oh my God, you're one of them. I can't lose this feeling. And now it's time for our movie, The Minute. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other, and it was Brittany's turn to pick this episode. What did you make us watch? I made everyone watch one of my favorite rom-coms of all time, and that is Music and Lyrics a delightful film from 2007 and it actually was released in theaters around Valentine's day in 2007. I remember vividly because I I went to see it on Valentine's day by myself. So (laughs) when I was like 17, because I love Hugh Grant. (laughs) So um, the writer and director of this movie is Mark Lawrence. So Mark Lawrence is like big in the rom-com world Um, He was involved with, you know, the directing and writing of a lot of big rom-coms, especially ones that star uh, Sandra Bullock, who was a bit of a rom-com queen. 
and a couple of, you know, Hugh Grant movies as well. So he's also done uh, Forces of Nature, Miss Congeniality, The Rewrite, Two Weeks Notice, the good stuff, you know? So music and lyrics kind of falls out of everyone's radar, and I don't know why. It's just like this fantastic, feel-good rom-com with Hugh Grant, who is... I, I can watch him in anything. He's probably one of my favorite actors. I enjoy his, like, assholeism in movies. Um, so he gets a pass on a lot of things in films from me. And also Drew Barrymore, who I love as well. Like, I find her to be just this, like, adorable human being. And she's so, so, so good in the role in this film. Well, music and lyrics takes place in New York City classic rom-com background and Hugh Grant plays this guy named Alex who is this like washed up 80s pop musician from a band named Pop and it's kind of like a Duran Duran ABC Wham type cheeseball 80s band complete with a careless whisper parody Oh, yeah, which I love. And it's um, I don't think it's on the movie soundtrack, but I would love like a full version of that song because I really like that part where they all go, whoa, whoa, pop deep cuts. Yes. (laughs) Well, pop has been like broken up for years. He's had a failed solo career because he's he's really good at coming up with tunes and writing music, but he sucks at uh, being a lyricist. He can't actually write good lyrics for songs. Um, so at this point, he's playing high school reunions, theme park shows, things like that. And I love the intro to this movie because the intro of the movie is a music video of Pop's big hit, which is Pop Goes My Heart, which is perhaps the catchiest song that wasn't really supposed to be a song and it kind of like you go through this like cheesy 80s music video full length of a song starring Hugh Grant they try to make him look young um, which is funny in itself because you know he's not and it trickles into like reality where it's like you know these producers are trying to pitch this show to Alex Hugh Grant's character uh, called Battle of the 80s Has-Beens, where um, it's just like one of those VH1-type shows where it's it's folks who like were one-hit wonders in the 80s that have to box each other. That happened um, on Fox when we were kids. They had like old sitcom stars from the 80s and 90s like box each other on TV. It was very embarrassing for everyone involved. I don't remember that. It was shameless. God, I'm, I'd be into it, though. We were just watching the latest season of The Bachelor, and they made the girls box each other in one of the last oh episodes. I'm like, what the hell? That's Foxy weird. boxing. <laughs> so that's kind of Alex in a nutshell. So what happens is there is this huge pop star, star named Cora Corman, who's played by Helly Bennett, the star of Swallow, which was like a Swamp Flicks favorite um, of 2020. Yeah, made our top 10. Yeah, this was her first role ever in a movie. (laughs) And she does this really good job at playing this like Britney Spears type pop star, which I was like really impressed with her role because like she doesn't play like 
this pat like she it's kind of a parody of a pop star but she's really like articulate with her music and like gives a lot of thought to things which i i enjoyed about her character like she wasn't this big joke well she's a big pop fan and she reaches out to alex because she wants him to write a song for her for them to both to perform together and she wants the song to be called a way back into love and this is like his one shot to like not let his career just bomb a hundred percent. Like, you know, he's losing like, f- you know, shows at fairs and stuff like that. So like, this is like his, his last chance. And he is attempting, he's in his apartment. He's like having this songwriting session, trying to figure out how to write the lyrics and the music to this song. And he gets a ring and, you know, a doorbell ring and it's Sophie played by Drew Barrymore. She's coming to water his plants. (laughs) And while she's kind of like watering his plants, she starts to kind of spit out her own lyrics. She's the kind of person that thinks out loud. So he overhears her and he's like, oh, that's really good. And he discovers that she's like this natural born lyricist. And he teams up with her and they both like go through this process of creating this song for this big pop star. So as they kind of go through that, they slowly fall in to love. But um, this is why I really enjoy this rom-com. First of all, the energy between the, you know, Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore is pretty, it's fun. It's friendly. Like they kind of build this great friendship with each other and they go through this creative process together and you watch them like create something together, which I find very enjoyable. And then they fall in love at the end. Obviously, it's a rom-com. Something like that has to happen. But I do love the build-up to their falling in love. And I like that Sophie kind of has, like, an interesting background herself. You know, she comes off as this, like, you know, quirky, like, you know, bohemian-type chick. But she had this, like, really awful past where she had a relationship with her professor And he used her story and also made up lies about her to create this character that caused him to have like a best-selling novel. So she just has like this in, you know, every corner of every bookstore, she sees this book that's about her and about, you know, how she, you know, tried to manipulate him while he was in a relationship to get what she wanted type thing. So she kind of has like that kind of tragedy going on. I think if I had one thing to ask of this movie to give me more of, it would be a little bit more about that. Also, Kristen Johnson is in here. She plays Rhonda, uh, Sophie's sister. And I find her to be like, so hilarious. And I don't know. I mean, I think the only film I can really think of her being in other than this is like the Flintstones Viva Rock Vegas, which she was (laughs) really good in too. But she's funny, like, and she's also a huge fan of pop. So, like, there's this really fun part where Sophie's talking to her and is like, yeah, this guy from that pop band that you used to like, like, invited me to a show. And she's like, watch the kids, we're going out. <laughs> like, she's so intense. And I love that. Also, like, another note before I open it up for discussion. Everyone, I mean, I think everyone has had, like, some sort of fantasy, whether you're, like, a kid or an adult, of, like, 
having a relationship with like a famous musician. <laughs> so I think that kind of taps into that. I mean, I would do that all the damn time, you know, where you're like, oh, like what happens like if I run into like Jesse McCartney and he's totally into me and then like <laughs> we, you know, have this like relationship and it's going to be so weird and random, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like th- that whole fantasy that I have I mean, I've dealt with that, like, forever. Um, It kind of, like, resonated (laughs) with, you know, Sophie falling in love with, like, this washed-up 80s pop singer. And I'm like, God, one day that could be, like, me and, like, Simon Laban or something. Like, I don't know. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) What did y'all think of music and lyrics? I did not like it very much the first time I watched it. I know. I watched it very intently, like you know, paying attention and taking notes. And I had things that like really bothered me about it. And then I watched it a second time in the background while I was doing like housework and I enjoyed it. (laughs) So I think that's like a touchstone of the genre. Like the more you pick it apart and the more you pay attention to like the politics and the relationships, the more annoying it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing about rom-coms. And I swear to you, like, and I know this is horrible, but I give rom-coms a pass on that kind of stuff. I don't know. They're just such a a part of growing up as a young woman, even though they're horrible. (laughs) I just, I love them. (laughs) I mean, I've, I felt, I guess, similar to Brandon in that it seemed like the lightest of light in that you could definitely just throw this on or like start watching it randomly in the middle of the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And it's like a perfectly passable way to spend an hour and a half. It's entertaining, it's light, Mm -hmm. it's whimsical. And I feel like in that same way, you know, the movies about like pop music, it kind of hits you in the same way that a perfectly well-made, decent pop song does. Like it serves its purpose. I was entertained. And the more times you hear it, the more comfortable it is and the more pleasurable it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like if you watch this movie multiple times, I think you'd be more fond of it than if you just saw it like on a bus or something. Like I, okay. First of all, I did think that that first scene, just like the parody of, you know, the eighties pop thing. I thought that was like probably the best scene in the whole movie. And I also thought Chris and Johnson was a highlight too. The one thing that was sort of lacking though. And for me, like this is one of the most important parts of a rom-com do the two leads have chemistry? And unfortunately, Drew Barrymore, extremely likable. I actually prefer Hugh Grant when he has a little more edge. Like he's a little more of an asshole. <laughs> and this one, he's just like, fine. But there was something severely lacking in their chemistry for me. And it's weird because I've seen Hugh Grant have it with like a Julia Roberts in Notting Hill. And mm, I've seen yes. Drew Barrymore have it even with like Adam Sandler in like a 51st dates. But there was something about the two of them together in this movie where I just didn't feel this spark. And I thought they were a hot couple. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. They are hot. Like, you know, they're two charismatic people. But I think when like rom-coms work really well, it's like they're two charismatic movie stars that also have a genuine spark that translates through the camera. And that was the one thing in this that I was kind of surprised by like, whoa, Mm -hmm. like 
Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore don't have chemistry. That's was weird to me. I could see where you're coming from with that. And I feel that too. I liked the, not so much like maybe the, the romantic chemistry, but I feel like I could just watch them like talk to each other all day. Like there is something in like their conversations and the lightness in it that I enjoyed watching. I think it would have been better for me. And the thing I did really like about it was it wasn't just about a romantic partnership. It was about a creative partnership. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wish they would have just dropped the romancing and like, why can't these people just become good friends and he finds a great writing partner and they write hit songs together. Without being like together, together. Yeah, without being in love. Because that's what it felt like. It felt like, oh, here's a developing creative partnership and they're becoming good friends. And then the whole falling in love thing didn't really feel real to me. You, you just got to watch it like about 20 more times. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when I was in college... I lived in like a one bedroom apartment with my friend and like all we did was like watch Grey's Anatomy and rom-coms because this was like pre-Netflix days. You know what I mean? You had to have like DVDs. So we would watch Maid of Honor with Patrick Dempsey and music and lyrics like back to back. And I swear to God, like one weekend, I think we watched music and lyrics at least 10 times and we just couldn't stop. I don't know. Like, I just find like this weird comfort in this movie. (laughs) Like whenever I have like a sick day, I just put it on and it like heals me. I'm not surprised to hear that knowing that you also love the wedding singer, which this feels like kind of like a more normalized, like (laughs) rom-com version of that movie. Like the wedding singer still has that Adam Sandler, like absurdity to it where there's just like outbursts of like his anger shtick that he does. Yeah. This is like a more like even keel, like mainstream rom-com version of that same like 80s nostalgia oh um, my throwback that The Wedding Singer does. Now it's making so much sense why this resonates <laughs> with me. Oh, my God. I'm glad this, I could bring thank you Thank you, Brandon, for this like therapy <laughs> session that I didn't expect. But I, I do know what you mean, though, <laughs> Brittany. Like, I, I think for me, it's like Julia Roberts romantic comedies, one of which I picked for later in the episode. But. Like Notting Hill was like that for me when I was in like high school. I owned a DVD copy of Notting Hill and watched it probably twenty to thirty times. Where if I, you know, if I put it on now, it's just this nostalgic, just warms me up in the inside. Feel good movie. Can I pop that nostalgia bubble a little bit and talk about what I did not like about this movie? What you got? I fiercely disagree with something that Brittany said in her recap. <laughs> Okay. This movie is so fucking cruel at Haley Bennett's expense, and it pisses me off. Paying attention to how this movie treats the teen pop idol versus how it treats the 80s music is infuriating the more you pay attention to it. To be fair, this is like from that era of like, I love the 80s VH1 specials and like Lonely Island parodies of music videos from that time. Like this 80s nostalgia content was like a whole industry in itself in the 2000s well they even had the like pop-up video sort of parody at the end which is total like 80s nostalgia it's so vh1 it's not even funny Mm -hmm. and to the movie's credit it is like critical of that 
industry as being just sort of like empty celebration of like times past. Like his whole thing about how he's like a happy has been is sort of like critical of just like how people are coasting on, you know, art from 20, 30 years ago. And I, I liked that a lot, especially just the songs in general. The, um, the songwriter of the movie is Adam Schlesinger who did, uh, the songs for like crazy ex girlfriend or like he co-wrote a lot of those. And he did that thing you do. He's the guy from like fountains of Wayne that died last year. And the songs are really catchy. Like both the eighties, um, songs and the one they write to sell to Haley Bennett's character. So all that works for me, but like the way it draws a distinction about like how good music used to be and like how stupid and vapid her music is and how it's just like a way for her to shake her ass to sell records really aggravated me and the the part that like really broke it for me where i was like well fuck this is when drew barrymore storms out of their meeting with Haley bennett and she's like she ruined our song the song is supposed to be sad and she made it sound happy and fun and sexy and the thing that like aggravates me about that is okay you and i i know for a fact love synth pop that's like one of the things that we really bonded on mm-hmm. was like erasure and um Depeche Mode and Yazoo you know, and Yaz. Yes. I love Yaz so much. <laughs> and the thing about eighties music of that type that like post new wave kind of like new romantic stuff that I love so much is that the lyrics are always suicidally depressed and sad and fucked up, but the music itself is so happy and bubbly. And that contrast between what you're hearing and what you're feeling is what makes that music magic. So for, this movie has like a fundamental misunderstanding of what made that music good. And like to say like, oh, it's a sad song. It has to sound sad. And to like make fun of this young person for making idiotic, vapid music when like those bands would have been made fun of at that time by older people. Like it's just so kids these days, like youth yeah. shaming. They were that, selling like, this to- me a certain audience for sure. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, of those folks, those same folks were like, Oh, the eighties is where it's at. And all this pop music sucks. I will say like that part of the Cora concert where she like comes out in the end in that robe and then like reveals this like super sexy suit that literally happened whenever I went to the very first concert I've ever been to, which was Britney Spears. (laughs) And I remember like I was, I went to Dallas to see her. Like my aunt brought me because I was like a disgustingly obsessed like Britney Spears fan. And I remember like how good I felt when I saw that. Like, you know what I mean? Like you saw how the, how the kids like were just kind of smiling and like, whoa, cool. Like that was me. Like Britney Spears literally came out and like with like one hand, like ripped off all her clothes and had this sparkling bikini on with a cowboy hat. (laughs) And I was like, just starstruck. And I agree that that stuff is cool as fuck. I just think the movie (laughs) makes this distinction between like music that is dinner and music that is dessert. And she Mm -hmm. is the dessert that they are like making fun of. And he sings that piano ballad at the final concert. That's supposed to be dinner. And I just can't imagine, like, if you were eight years old at that Britney Spears concert and some fifty-year-old like, dude at a piano started playing that song, you would have fucking fallen asleep. I know. What? It reminds me too. You know, there's that one guy who wrote like ninety percent of the pop songs from the '90s and early 2000s. I think he's like a Swedish guy or something. And it, the yeah, the movie definitely seems to be saying like that. That's more the artist. Like the people behind the pop stars that write the tunes and 
are the ghost writers. Like these are the true artists behind these sort of hot girls shaking their ass sort of thing. But like you said, like nobody would go see the 50 year old Swedish man who wrote all the Britney Spears songs. Like there's a reason that, that the image is like necessary, especially in pop music. There's like a Gen X specific obsession with like authenticity that like the older I get, the more angry I am at it. Like it's just like, (laughs) fuck you. It's good music. It's good. It's fun. You just enjoy it. Speaking of like the music and the singing, I was really impressed with Haley Bennett's singing abilities. I really liked all of her songs. She reminded me like a lot of like, a mix of like Britney Spears and like vitamin C. Very raspy. Yeah. And also Hugh Grant as a singer. He was, I mean, he had like a lot of vocal coaches for this movie. Not a lot, but like a couple. But one of them was Martin Fry from ABC. So you could kind of feel like the <laughs> kind of, you know, ABC style <laughs> singing. And yeah, like, I, I just like, I love it whenever, you know, you have an actor who puts in the work and I liked that he did that. And he also like kind of learned how to play piano. So I kind of like that. And the dance moves were pretty fun too. It just, he's just a fun character. All of the songwriting stuff was really cute. I thought so the songs good. are actually catchy. Oh yeah. Like I have watched the music video to Pop Goes My Heart because I have it on DVD and it's one of the special features. You could just pop the music video on. And I feel like I've watched that like 20 times since like I've watched this to prep for today. <laughs> I uh, I don't mean to sound as harsh on it as I am. <laughs> no, I mean, like, that's the reason we're not like, I mean, we don't like watch movies and then just say like, here's all the good things about them. I mean, there's bad shit and everything. So yeah, your, yeah. your points were valid. I think it is like really good comfort watching, watching it in the background the second day where like, I was just like, like I was humming along to the songs and like, just sort of like paying attention to the more comedic parts. I was like, Oh, this is really, this is really cute. I wasn't giving enough credit for being like adorable, but yeah, the first time watching and paying attention to like with a critical eye, <laughs> the intergenerational <laughs> politics. I was like, God yeah. damn this. <laughs> <laughs> Michael and Julianne have been best friends for years. The one constant thing in my life is that he'll always be there. But they were never more than that. Call me, four in the morning, whatever, we gotta talk. Until he popped the question. I called because I met someone. To someone else. I also am a huge fan of rom-coms. There was a lot to choose from. I was racking my brain. And what I ultimately decided on was a very mainstream, very successful box office hit called My Best Friend's Wedding from 1997. It's got Julia Roberts, Cameron Diaz, Dermot Mulroney as the love interest. But I think why I ultimately settled on this one, like I mentioned earlier, there's a period in film history where like Julia Roberts was just absolutely killing it and making money hand over fist. She was this like American starlet. And as I was thinking about like this film of everything she did in that period really, I think subverted that image of her. And 
I also think My Best Friend's Wedding is one of the more interesting rom-coms of all time. The story kind of begins in a pretty standard rom-com way. You have this food critic, Jules, played by Julia Roberts. She has this lifelong friend, this guy, Michael, who's a, you know, he's a sports writer in Chicago. They've been friends since college. They had this really intense fling, but she is kind of non-committal, isn't willing to say like that she loves anyone. So they kind of have remained friends all these years. And they made a pact that if they turn 28 and have not gotten married, that they will marry each other. And so it's a few weeks from Jules's 28th birthday and she gets a phone call from Michael and her heart sort of flutters. And she assumes that this is going to be the moment where he asks her to marry him to marry her and they'll ride off in the sunset. But as it turns out, he tells her that he has fallen in love with a woman, Kimmy, played by Cameron Diaz, who he has not known very long, but he's smitten. She's much younger and he is inviting Jules to the wedding, which is taking place in Chicago in like a few days. And the rest of the film is basically an escalation of Jules trying to sabotage their wedding in ways that kind of start, you know, subtle, like Kimmy is afraid of karaoke and Jules forces her to do this karaoke. It starts from like that level to outright plagiarizing emails to get people fired from their job to outright like really malicious stuff. And the whole time you have this, like we were talking about in music and lyrics, like I always look for this connection. Like do these people look like they're in love on screen? And the like real dilemma of this film is like, you can kind of see that Michael is in love with Jules on some level there are true like feelings there. And the question becomes, who's he going to pick? Is he going to pick Kimmy or is he going to pick this woman he's known his whole life that is his best friend? And what I had talked about earlier with the subversion is the rom-com rules typically tell you that they have to end up together. That's just how these movies work. And as we see her character kind of get more and more desperate, we realize about halfway to two thirds into the film, like, no, she is the villain. She is a bad person. She does not deserve him. And ultimately that is what occurs. And she is punished for her behavior. She does not get the man of her dreams. She's aware that she's the bad guy too. She even says that like out loud, like I'm lower than pond scum. I'm like the absolute fucking worst. That great scene. Yeah. So I think the reason that this movie is so captivating to me is there's like these broad gags, I guess you could say, you know, there's a lot of humor in there, but there are really what I would say like romantic tender moments between these characters and you as a audience member are conflicted because you feel it. And I think the real like star of the film is actually Cameron Diaz because her role is, is a tough one. Like you initially are kind of annoyed by her, but she actually grows on you, especially in that karaoke scene where she's a horrible singer, but just her vibe is just so good. 
people in the karaoke bar like fall in love with her and then you see why Michael would fall in love with her. And so like, yeah, as your opinion of Julia Roberts goes down, your opinion of the Cameron Diaz character goes up and, you know, it culminates in this kind of farcical thing at the wedding, but ultimately all is right with the world. And so, I don't know, to me, it is definitely one of the most interesting subversions of the romantic comedy formula. And it's just fun. I mean, there's a lot of scenes of just singing and dancing and it's got humor and it's got heart. And I could definitely see why this movie was such a huge hit. Yeah. You even get a full on like musical number in a crab restaurant, like a Joe's crab shack. (laughs) Which is great. It's so infectious. It's fabulous. (laughs) And it opens with like a 1950s like musical throwback that like Technicolor old Hollywood mm-hmm. look. It's like bubblegum pink backdrop. It's really beautiful. With like no one who's actually playing in the movie. So it really <laughs> feels like its own thing. But I'm glad you sa- you mentioned that about the Kimmy character, James, because like re-watching this, like it really brought to the forefront. Like, yeah, she's kind of the star of the show. And I love this character so much like if i'm you know just going out in the environment that that personality that cameron diaz has with the kimmy character like those are the people that i click with the most in the real world like just like fun kind of like happy-go-lucky people who like aren't big assholes so i found that refreshing um kind of watching that again i'm like oh like i feel like you know whenever i go on trips and stuff like those are like the random people i meet like on a bus or something that i hit it off with and it just felt nice and the movie treats her so well too in that like like i said she to me initially like she's set up as a certain type of person a dangerous driver dangerous (laughs) driver she's (laughs) super young you know there's a big age gap between them I think the difference is like she's supposed to be kind of sweet and docile while Julia Roberts character is like super opinionated and like forceful. And typically like for me personally, like that Cameron Diaz sort of character in this would sort of annoy me a little mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know for me personally type of people that are like, they're super happy all the time. There's a slight annoyance there, which I think the movie actually plays up in the beginning she is, I think, supposed to be a little annoying. But as you see her go on throughout the movie, she's like strong. She is really in love with Michael. Right. She has this like really infectious, sweet energy that you understand as the movie goes on. Like, oh, I see why he loves her. And again, with the Jules character initially, you're like, oh, yeah, she's a badass, independent, opinionated woman. But as the film goes on, you're like, oh, she's kind of a piece of crap person (laughs) what's so funny is like i mean the women of in my family like my aunts and you know mother and cousins who like we all are into rom-coms and whenever we like watch this movie together everyone's always like look at this dud you know what i mean like they just don't get the kimmy character and i'm like like she's like this girl is like doing nothing wrong like why does everyone hate her so much and like want all these horrible things to happen to her and it's like well because julia roberts needs to get with him in the end that's why so that's kind of like just what you know a lot of the feedback i've had like you know with this movie has kind of been just everybody kind of shitting on kimmy 
and wanting Julia Roberts to like win in the end. That would be it behaving more like a normal movie though, right? Exactly. It wouldn't be anything special if that happened. Which makes this a cool rom-com is like the twist and like, you know, the end just kind of being a little bit more about, eh, maybe you're just meant to be like platonic friends with this dude and that's totally fine. And it is like super impressive to me that she is still likable at the end. Like she fucks up so spectacularly in unforgivable ways and you still like like her at the end of the movie. Because she like owns her shit, like Lisa Renna says on the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. You have to <laughs> own it. You know, and I think like I have mad respect for people like in movies and in real life where if you fuck up, just say I fucked up and I was a piece of shit. I'm pond scum. Yeah, I'm pond scum. That's re- you're redeemed. That really goes to her <laughs> like ability where she could play this sort of character and yet still by the end like i still care for julia roberts you know like i i feel like it's hard to pull that off yeah one other thing i really love about it is most rom-coms they're not really in a genuine way about flawed people they're, they're it's like they're flawed but they just need to find that perfect someone to complete them and it all is right with the world. And this movie is really about like each one of these characters has glaring flaws. And it's about them all like trying to find happiness. And you understand the motivations of each character. And yet you don't have a clear idea of where the story is going. Like there's actual stakes, which you can't save for 90% of rom-coms. Like as soon as they start, it's etched into stone what the ending is going to be. And you don't right. feel that in this one. I, that's why I think it's a special rom-com. I will say Michael is such a bland character in here for me. Like, I don't know. Like he just, he has no charisma, no charm. He's just kind of there just being a dud. I'll go ahead and say, I don't think that men need to be that interesting in rom-coms. No. <laughs> like it's right. really not about their journey. Usually like the whole time. I'm just kind of like, I mean that guy y'all. I, I think it works in <laughs> this film though. And that like, you could tell Jules is so desperate for love that she's latched on to this guy from high school or sorry, from college. She had this like week long or month long fling with who's like, okay, he's, I guess, a cool guy, but he's not this, like, super charming, sweet, intelligent, funny guy. He's just, like, a dude. And that's just so shows, like, how lacking she is in a real, like, love life. Y'all, she's 28 years old. Her life is practically over. I did not look that put together at 28. <laughs> like, that's crazy. I feel like I still looked like I was wearing like hoodies and had my hair in a bun all the fucking time. I was thinking like, wow, that she's actually pretty young to be married. And then I was like, wait a second. I got married when I was 26. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> to do the math. One character I don't think we talked about yet is George. Oh, my God. Love him. Rupert. Yeah, and it's like, I know he's playing like that gay best friend trope. Totally. Where, you know, all he does is like cheer on, you know, the main girl. Yeah, he does not have out. flaws. But he is so perfect. <laughs> that whole dinner scene where he's like talking about like, you know, his like meet up with like Dionne Warwick and they like break off into like this musical number and everyone's into him. Like that's 
like one of the most classic like rom-com scenes ever it's so good and like rupert everett as george is probably one of the strongest characters in this movie well he he is the most honest person in the movie i mean he tells it exactly how it is he tells her in the beginning of the movie like just go tell him that you love him that's all you need to do and she doesn't listen to him and she has all these schemes going and i don't know if anything would have changed but if she would have just told him exactly how she felt and listened to george she might have gotten what she wanted or wouldn't have made an ass out of herself in the end he's super charming in the role but it is like the most tropey like gay best friend trope. i know like he I has know. no life outside of his relationship to her and takes two round trip flights in this movie to make her feel better insane i cannot imagine dropping my life to like cheer up some i mean i love you both but i'm not flying across the country <laughs> to like put you in a good mood and then well, i wouldn't fly home. for y'all either well it's funny uh, too. Like, i'm he, just kidding he <laughs> has <wouldn't>, like <laughs> you know he's interrupted like a book signing thing and he's interrupted like a dinner party it's like he's doing other shit and she keeps interrupting his life and yeah he has to go yeah. fly across the country to deal with her because apparently that's what gay best friends do i kind of like that that trope is here though because what's like really interesting about this movie is like yeah it's sort of poking at the politics and like the insane behavior in rom-coms but like it also ticks off like every box it can the gay best friends there Jules has this ridiculous job. She's like a food critic, which I feel like that's always a rom-com thing. Like you either work for like a fashion magazine or you have some like insane job as like a foreman at a kite factory or something ridiculous. Also just the fact that she's supposed to be frumpy. Like I, I noticed that when I was watching the net recently with the Sandra Bullock supposed to be this like computer slob in that. And you're like, okay, Julia Roberts and Sandra Bullock are like the Hollywood idea of like a frumpy everyday like girl next door that is insane it's Uh, (laughs) i feel like that's why they had her smoke cigarettes throughout the movie too is to try to add some unattractiveness factor but it made her more attractive she looks cool as hell (laughs) yeah i know like the drunker (laughs) she got the more she smoked i was like damn girl like yes But I, I like that it does all of those like cliche tropes. Like it, it ticks every box it can and then, you know, mm-hmm. actually examines the behavior it's been displaying the whole time in like a you know meaningful way. I don't know. We were talking or I was talking earlier about um, music and lyrics. Like the more I paid attention to it, the uh, the more aggravated I was by it. And it was like a lot easier just sort of like background fodder. I feel like my best friend's wedding actually is paying attention to like the things it's doing and saying in like a meaningful way but still gives you the same kind of like in the moment entertainment comforts. I'm glad that we, we had a Julia Roberts movie too. Cause I feel like all of them give off the same vibe. This one, you know, is the ultimate, like James was kind of saying, but you know, between like mystic pizza, Notting Hill, like runaway bride, you just kind of get that same Julia feeling. America's sweetheart. I, I think that's why this one has a special place in my heart is that it, it ticks every box. It has the musical number. It's got these like broad comedic gags. It's got real like sexiness and romance and some scene. Like there's a scene where they're on the the boat together 
and um, the Michael character is telling Jules, you know, if you love someone, like you just have to say it. And then they go under, like they're in the dark for a second. You could tell she's wrestling with it and she just can't do it. And then they're back out into the light. There's like some really like tender moments in here too. So yeah, it ticked all the boxes and it's Julia Roberts. Who's like the queen of these sort of films. And it also does something very interesting with it. Kind of commenting on romantic comedies themselves and our expectations. So yeah, I, I love my best friend's wedding. Well, you were talking earlier about that one being like a mainstream hit that like made tons of box office dollars. Um, I don't think my pick did. Uh, <laughs> it's from 1995. It's called Party Girl. It's a, a much cheaper film, I think, than either of the ones y'all picked. It stars Parker Posey, though. Everyone knows her. Uh, she plays a New York City club kid. It seems like the movie's set more in the late 80s than the 90s. Just the vibe feels very like 80s, like ecstasy popping, club hopping, club kid culture. She wants to give up her life of like hanging out with drag queens and stealing couture clothing from uh, people's closets during parties. She wants to like get a job. She's inspired by her um, her godmother who works as a librarian. At first, she's sort of reluctantly recruited as a librarian clerk to like pay back uh, the bail money that her godmother pays to get her out of jail for like throwing a party that got busted by the cops. But she eventually falls in love with the work as a library clerk and wants to become a legit librarian, go back to school. Along the way, she helps a DJ friend get his footing in a, in a career, like spinning house records at local clubs. And she also falls in love with the obligatory romantic interest who is a falafel cart vendor. She buys the same falafel sandwich with hot sauce uh, and a side of baba ganoush every day from him and decides he's very attractive and starts wooing him by learning to speak Arabic, uh, very rudimentary Arabic, which he makes fun of her a little bit and then um, decides to take her out. The romance does not matter that much in this rom-com. And I think that's one of the reasons I really love it. That was my problem with it. <laughs> I love it. So the movie does these like fantasy sequences where like the falafel cart guy is like stripping in the steam of his falafel cart as if so he were like a music video. Yes. Uh, and later she uses him as like a human prop at her like Lebanese uh, themed like house party which is like one of her low points when she like relapses and goes back into her like party girl mode instead of her library girl uh or library woman mm. <laughs> butterfly okay. that she emerges as <laughs> but i love that the romance doesn't matter in this movie because i don't think men are that important in rom-coms i think the women at the center are usually what matters it's about them finding themselves and modeling outrageous outfits. And I think this movie does both of those things extremely well. Parker Posey wears ridiculous clothes the whole time and just like becomes a self-assured, more well-rounded person by the end. I liked how this movie, like most movies that kind of follow this plot, it wouldn't be a, a librarian turning into a party girl. You know oh, yeah. what I mean? And this one is just like a party girl turning into a librarian, which I thought was pretty, pretty cool. 
but yeah, like the whole vibe of this movie is awesome. Like the, you know, that queer like NYC club scene. Love it. All of Mary's freaking outfits. Just ugh, like that's what I would like to dress like if I had money, you know, or if I could steal from people's closets. I just have no, I don't know anybody that has couture like that. The very first person on screen is the Lady Bunny. Lady Bunny cameo. I know. And how young did Lady Bunny look? It's, it's <laughs> How insane. small was her wig? So <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a quadrupled in size since that point. But yeah, like, I, I don't know. Like, I like this movie a lot. And, you know, whenever I went through that, you know, like, you know, that whole, like, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up uh, kind of thought process before I went to college. Like I wanted to be a librarian. I thought it was so cool. So like I, you know, got my like bachelor's in history and then just, I needed to like get a job cause I was like super broke and that just kind of like fizzled away. But this kind of like ignited it back in me. And I was like, Oh, check her out. Like, you know, helping everyone with like the Dewey decimal system and, you know, appreciating librarianship. And I love how the movie kind of does that, where it shows that librarians don't just like put books back on shelves. I love when she's uh, voguing down the runway of the long library tables and like, Ugh. and reshelving books like to the beat. She's going like, yes, mama, <laughs> like putting books back on the shelf. Uh, what we all want to be doing. Yeah. That is pure cinema. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I liked it. I, I love Parker Posey. I never saw this movie before until until we watched it for uh, this episode, but I was into it. I was surprised that it wasn't, there wasn't much romance in it, except for romance with herself and her career, which is kind of nice. This is not a romantic comedy, Brandon. It's not a rom-com? <laughs> it's not, no. Why not? Okay. First, I want to say that I actually, I did like the movie. Like Parker Posey has great energy. And yeah, the, the clothes and the music, the vibe of it was like a little sitcom-y, I guess you could say. Like, it was kind of episodic, the way everything happened. And I loved all the librarian stuff. Like, the way she helps out her friend with, like, organizing his records. And that whole montage, you know, when she's learning the Dewey Decimal System. Yeah, no, I, I thought all that was great. But... This was an episode about rom-coms, which I feel like of all the genres is maybe the most clearly defined. It's like, you know a rom-com when you see it. You just And this, to me, is not a rom-com. I, I get your point that the men don't matter or whatever, but like there is no real romantic anything going on in this movie. I mean, maybe it's like they're on screen together for, what, five, ten minutes of a movie that's an hour and a half? That's not a rom-com. She returns to his cart frequently. <laughs> they have a falling out. And she treats him like shit, too. <laughs> she, like, stands him up on the first date. Then they throw a party where he's just making falafels on the side. And then she, like, gets super fucked up, leaves him at the party, and then I guess he shows up at her birthday party and I guess they're dating now. Like the romance, <laughs> the romance was so lacking, which maybe was the point. It's like, she's working on herself where he's just sort of a side thing. But again, we were talking about doing an episode on rom-coms. 
You're throwing a flag on the field. This is not this is not a rom-com. <laughs> I am. What makes a rom-com? Probably my like major problem is I couldn't think of any that I love. This is such <laughs> like a a Brandon pick for a rom-com though. Like it's very you in like your choice in films and like I was curious about what kind of rom-com you were going to pick cuz it doesn't seem like something up your alley as far as movies. You picked go. one that's not a rom-com. It's <laughs> I mean, it's a comedy and it has romance in it. Like I really don't know. It's a chick flick. Yeah, like yeah, I think chick flick probably is something that rom coms get grouped in with. I think the other side of that is usually weepies, like you know, like a walk to remember or something where like somebody oh, has cancer. I fucking hate that movie. They made us watch that in high school. No, sorry, junior high school. Like almost once a month on Fridays. Isn't that horrific? It is. That's torture. Right? Okay, so like those are the two sides of the chick flick coin, though, right? So, mm-hmm. like, where does this fit in? I think it's passing as a rom com because there is romance. It's not hot romance, it's not like as true as others, but she does have multiple kind of like romances or flings. Mustafa is probably her main, the main one, obviously. But also just like women kind of like finding themselves, finding their path in life is also like a big thing that occurs in rom-coms. So, and she kind of does that. So I, I, I kind of think it falls into the rom-com category. It's not a strong one. It's like a female empowerment picture. Which most rom-coms are not. Yeah, which the, <laughs> the whole idea is that she actually, do I think that she's going to stay with Mustafa for more than like a month? Like, absolutely not. I think that's the whole point is like, she's a party girl. Okay. She's a librarian now, but she's going to drop this guy in like a week or two. Does every rom-com that ends with someone like running to the airport to stop someone from getting on a plane? Does that always like pan out past the end credits? I think like the way I'm thinking about it is putting it in the very traditional box of the way a rom-com Works, And I think one of the fundamental rules of a rom-com is whoever you end up with at the end of the movie is your partner. Like that is who you love, who you'll spend the rest of your life with right off to into the sunset. So in that very fundamental way, this doesn't fit in with that because you don't feel anything between her and Mustafa. It's just like a fling. So maybe that is empowering in some way. and subversive but again it's such a clear genre that has like rules and i think something like run you know my best friend's wedding it plays with the rules and it breaks some rules but it still sticks to like the formula in a way that this is not this is not this is like outside the realm of a rom-com i would compare it most to uh, the Devil Wears Prada. Mm. If I'm going yeah. to connect it to a yes. like mainstream rom-com choice. Which fits into that rom-com world, even though there's no big romance. Yeah, and in that movie, you know, Anne Hathaway is mainly in love with her job. <laughs> and like most of the conflict is her job. And there are like two men in her periphery that are like both potential romantic mates but they're not as important as like her finding her footing in the world. And this is just a more fun, quirky version of that mainstream rom-com formula to me. I really think that like a 30 second scene at the end of the movie 
where she is studying while she's getting her like library science degree next to the food cart with Mustafa making falafel that would have like kind of rounded it out a little bit and like made it more of a stronger like rom-com just a little something like that I would also say the fact that other people are paired off in the movie romantically also puts it in line. Like the DJ falls in love with a um, featured dancer in the nightclub and also her gay best friend trope character is searching for this like wonderful one night stand he had before the movie even started. He's searching for Carlos or Kurt the entire time. Um, and by the end of the film, they match up as well. So everyone's paired off romantically in that final party scene. And when they ask, I think they ask Mustafa at the end, like, look at us now. Look at everybody here. What do you think of this? And he says something like, we're all a garden of beautiful flowers and we're blooming. And I don't know. I was just like really swept up in like the uh, communal like happiness in that final party. It worked for me a lot. No. And debating about whether or not it's a rom-com is not really getting out i think what like is good about this film for me it, it like it had this infectious energy where i really felt like i was hanging out with these people i like their energy i want to like go to a party with them and what worked for me is like i thought there actually was a little darkness under that which they delve into they have the side character that's like a recovering alcoholic and that's kind of what her character goes through is the partying the day in, day out. They talk about Sisyphus, you know, pushing the boulder up the hill and the next day you have to start back up. Like, I didn't really take it as a super happy ending necessarily. I mean, how long can you just go from like party to party to party? You know, eventually you've got to like learn some like responsibility, which I don't know if her character is even there by the end of the movie. I think at the end, she's leaving the party life behind, or at least not like every single night going out till four in the morning and passing out on her stairs. Like, I think that part of her life is over. The older I get, the more comfort I find when things like that happen in movies. Like, Whenever there's like all these party scenes, I was like legit getting anxious because I'm like, how is she affording this? Like, it's so expensive to live in New York. Like, what is she doing? Is she going to make it? And like in real life, like all those club kids were like trust fund babies. But you know what I mean? Like I have like that anxiety. And when she was like, oh, I'm going to go to school. And like when she started working, I kind of felt like, whew, like a little weight (laughs) was lifted off my shoulders. (laughs) But she literally, she gets super fucked up at this party takes like LSD or something. And that I guess the next morning has some epiphany. You no, know, I want to take the library thing seriously. And then the next day gets her job back. And it's like, there's no real consequences for her as a character. Well, that's the third act dip that you see in every rom-com like in music and lyrics. That's where Hugh Grant tells Drew Barrymore, you know what? You are just like that character in that book. You are like a flighty, vapid person. Oh, God, I hate that part. And then in My Best Friend's Wedding, that is her, like, sending the email. Right. And, like, Mm -hmm. trying to put that back together. Like, there always is that, like, last-minute dip in conflict that has to be, like, repaired immediately. And I think in Party Girl, it's her using her boyfriend as a prop at a party to, like, sell falafels to, like, the idiot drunks that she, like, barely knows 
I think that's like a very low point for her. And she snaps out of it the next day pretty quickly, but it's also a comedy that has to wrap up in 90 minutes. So I don't know how much more that needs to do there. You know, honestly, again, like I did enjoy this too for the, the diversity on display racially, sexually, it was just felt like such a vibrant cast of people that actually reflects the people that live in America. You know what I mean? Like, and I did enjoy spending time with them and it was fun. It was a light flighty party. I did not go schmaltzy enough for you is what I'm hearing. No. Cause I, I like, I want to cry in a rom-com dude. I want to like really feel like my heart's being pulled out of my chest. You know what I mean? Like that that's my one grievance is like, I didn't feel anything between her and this falafel <laughs> sales. Like it, it didn't matter. It was really about the music and the dancing and the clothes and all that was extremely entertaining, but it's more calm than rom. It's totally more mm. calm than rom. It's a calm rom. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Well, what I'm hearing is that Party Girl is the best rom-com ever. Uh, (laughs) It it checks all the boxes. (laughs) I mean, this was a grab bag of films just in general. We each just sort of picked one, not thinking they had much to say about each other. I do like to try to group things together whenever we pick three movies. I think these are all very strongly music focused in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. Like... Music and lyrics has the eighties um, songwriting bits. Uh, My best friend's wedding has a lot of like old Hollywood musical throwbacks and like sixties pop music. And then party girl is like nineties club kid, New York city, like house music. There's like a beat just pounding throughout that entire film. People are voguing everywhere and runway walking. So I think that's like an essential part of the rom-com genre too. It's just like music is a very good way to get everyone on the same page and smiling. You're right. Musical uh, picks. I never put that together until just now. I do like the grab bag that we picked, though. Like, Mm -hmm. my best friend's wedding is, like, so this, like, iconic, like, rom-com of rom-coms. Party Girl is, like, this kind of lesser-known rom-com, quote-unquote, that not a lot of people have heard of. And music and lyrics is, like, a prominent one that just, like, doesn't hit everyone's list. You know, I think we kind of... Picked a good bunch. And I like, too, that I feel like the most important part of a romance story or a rom-com is the romance, the connection between the leads. And what's interesting about the three we picked, in my opinion, is that the one that has it the most in My Best Friend's Wedding, that connection, actually, the characters don't end up together, you know, which I, I think is kind of fascinating. And that, again... That's why why it's the best rom-com of all time. <laughs> I like that we're like uh, making this into a competition. This is I love good. it. Yeah. This is healthy. <laughs> yeah. But no, these are all very, very different and they're all good in their own ways. Got to end on a positive note. Right. Oh my God. I'm ready for like a part two rom-com episode. Just throwing it out there. I would pick uh, something even zanier and less romantic. I'm sure. If I had to dig even further down my backlog. Yeah, I would love to see you really stretch the definition of rom-com. 
I genuinely believe that the romance and the man does not matter in rom-coms as much as the woman finding herself. And I think that's even true in my best friend's wedding. Like Dermot Mulroney is more or less a non-presence in that film. Well, yeah. I think for the most part though, there are films that are targeted towards women. So they try to give the female character more of an interior life. Good. Than the men. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm saying that's what it is. Like, yeah. like you said, the men are, are kind of, secondary as long as you're you know charming and good looking sort of dreamy then you know as long as i can like somewhat resonate with like the female character like i'm on board which in every rom-com there's something that i'm like oh yeah yes 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 mama (laughs) (laughs) yes mama that is depressing and i've been through it Well, we're going to continue the Valentine's Day content next episode. Uh, Boomer and I will be discussing Picnic and Hanging Rock, which is set on Valentine's Day. (laughs) I'm looking forward to talking about it. Nice. And we will be coming back Mardi Gras week on another non-Mardi Gras topic because that's not happening this year. It's too sad to talk about. I agree. I'm like, for the first time ever, I'm like leaving town for Mardi Gras because I like... I just can't handle it. And also, like, I know everyone's going to be a big idiot Mardi Gras day. So I just don't want to be around it. (laughs) It might be a good call. I might do something. I might walk around my neighborhood or something. Just keep my distance from the quarter. Right, right. I know, like, because part of me, like, I've been enjoying, like, the float houses. But, like, the thing is, is, like, people are gathering in giant unmasked crowds in front of all the float houses. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not doing that. And I'm like, I'm just going to stay in my car. What was the deal with the last weekend? There was just thousands of people in the French Quarter. Like, why? Well, they were cordially invited by the mayor, as long as they mm-hmm. behave. Why <laughs> are you here? There's nothing to do here. Yeah. Go. Stay home. There's no Mardi Gras to be had. Jesus. <sighs> anyway. It's just a sad time because, you know, Crew Divine is like one of the things I look forward to the most. This was going to be our fifth year. I know. But you know what? I put money aside that I normally would have spent on like my crew divine stuff. And I'm going to like double it for next year. <laughs> I have a higher budget. <laughs> so yeah, I'm excited for next Mardi Gras. <laughs> we'll have some lady bunny size wigs. <laughs> next time we <laughs> right. walk in the quarter. Did you notice that, that she was uh, credited as the lady bunny as itself in the credits? Yes. Lo- love that. Gag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I loved how it was like the lady bunny. <laughs> I don't know. That made me laugh a lot. Well, more drag talk to come, I'm sure, because we always find a way to squeeze it in. (laughs) Talk to you later. Bye, Bye, everybody. Bye.